Open your Bibles to Romans uh, 13. Romans 13, which we have uh, been looking at for a couple of weeks now. And just to prepare our minds for that, I was reading this week and thought about this interesting provision that's in the Old Testament law in Exodus 21. It has to do with slaves. And Exodus 21.1 says... Now, these are the rules that you will perform. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. That is to say... The slave had children uh, during the time of his uh, slavery. If he was given a wife somewhere along the way, and he had served his six years, and a seventh year came along, but his wife, and of course the children who were with her, had not completed their six years, uh, they were to remain until their commitment is full. That's the way it worked in Israel. But Moses goes on to say this in verse 5. He says, but... If the slave plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God and shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So it's this interesting provision within the context of slavery within Israel, that a slave had the option of staying. He wasn't necessarily forced to go. And if he decides along the way that he would want to stay, he could go over to the the Lord's house, to the tabernacle or the temple, and he could lay his earlobe against the doorpost, and they would punch a hole through it. They would pierce it with an owl as a sign of his commitment. Now, you might ask yourself, what in the world... Why in the world would a slave ever choose to stay in bondage? Why would a a slave ever choose to remain a slave? Well, the simple answer is this, because for him, it was no longer slavery. He chose to stay because what maybe had begun as slavery now was no longer slavery. Because for him, very clearly Moses says, it's no longer slavery, it's love. In fact, this is what he says in verse 5. I love my master. I love my wife and my children. We presume these are Hebrew women who would eventually go free in time. So the emphasis probably on the fact that he loves his master. And there's no use for him waiting uh, three or four more years for his children to be free or whatever. So he says, you know, I want to stay. I want to stay because of love. So you see, slavery wasn't really slavery to him because now it had become love. Now, that whole thing is a grand illustration, I think. When you come to the New Testament and the New Testament begins to talk about the law of God. It begins to illustrate, I think, the life of a believer in his relationship to the law. Those who find themselves under the law but have no love for the law giver look at themselves under that law as in bondage and slavery. In fact, that's the way the Scripture speaks of them, as in bondage and slavery. They want to flee. They want to go. 
But there's a difference for those whose hearts become filled with the love of God. It transforms them, we might say, from what they once thought was slavery to now what they think of as acts of love. It is what allows the psalmist to say, Oh, how I delight in your law. A law, in other words, in the heart of one who has a certain love for God, is transformed because his motive is transformed. The law is clarified because his motive is clarified. The end of the law, the purpose of the law, is not just keeping a law for the sake of law. It's not even keeping a law in order to keep God from being angry with you. Now, the purpose of the law, the purpose of the ways of God, is a practical way of showing love toward God. And so, like the slave who decides he wants to stay with his master, not out of slavery, but out of love, so the Christian realizes that he wants to serve God, not a law, he wants to serve God from love. Love becomes the primary reason for everything that God's asked him to do and everything he delights to do. Well, if you can understand that, then you can understand what Paul says in Romans thirteen nine. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment, they're summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, Paul's focus as he lays out this, this little um, uh, principle for us His focus as he gives that is particularly on what we might call the second table of the law, those which have to do with our relationships to other human beings. But you could very well add to it the first table of the law, everything that you do in relationship to your worship of God and your following of God, every bit of it is fulfilled in this one word, which is love, whether it's love towards God or love towards another No matter what, Paul is saying this is the summary, this is the main point, this is the goal. These laws, any other law, all laws. And of course in saying that, Paul wasn't inventing anything new, he was just simply picking up on that central teaching of Jesus Christ who told us that on two great commandments, the commandment to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the commandment to love your neighbor neighbor as yourself, on those two commandments, commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. Now, if you've been with us for a couple weeks, you know that this theme of love didn't come out of nowhere. As Paul is talking about it and summarizing it for us, he really is returning to a subject he had begun all the way back in chapter 12, verse 9, when he started to talk about what insincere love, excuse me, what love looks like, uh, telling us not to have insincere love, telling us not to have hypocritical love, and he, he, he gave us a number of manifestations, we might say, of what genuine, unhypocritical, uh, sincere love would look like in the life of a believer. It would show, for example, brotherly affection. It would show honor. It would contribute to the needs of the saints. It would not be wise in its own sight. It would not repay evil for evil. It would, as far as depends on you, live at peace with all men. In many other ways, Paul defines for us in Romans chapter 12 how love manifests itself. And he continues that discussion of love all the way into chapter 13, but as a part of that, 
as we've been looking at, Paul turned his special attention to our relationship with governing authorities. Some people wonder, well, where in the world did that come from? All this discussion of love, what does that uh, have anything to do with submitting to governing authorities, which was Paul's message in the first six verses or so of this chapter? Well, Paul is helping us to understand just another practical way of sincere Christian love. Love for God by yielding to the governments that he has established, love for neighbors by not causing disturbances or turmoils in the government, and even love for the authorities, these governing authorities themselves. (laughs) I know that's a stretch, I understand, to think about loving these governing authorities I mean, you might can get past obeying them, you might can get past yielding to them, submitting to them, but actually loving them, uh, that, that's, that's foreign, foreign to your thinking. But this is exactly the connection that Paul is making. In fact, beginning in verse 7, he moves steadily through a progression Linking all of this together, beginning from owing taxes to honoring officials to verse 8, owing love. Owing love to these very people. That's what he says. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now we want to trace what I think is Paul's movement here from what we might call our civil responsibilities to what we might call our spiritual responsibilities. And we really want to understand the way that he ties love through all of these responsibilities. And I think we could do that by, by framing this really with two key categories of love. Not necessarily parallel. We might say uh, at differing levels or differing layers of, of, of depth. Paul begins by looking in verses 7 through 8, I think, at how love fulfills your civic responsibilities. He's telling us how love fulfills your civic responsibilities. And he begins there in verse 7, begins by sort of, as I said, reviewing everything he's told us in the first six verses in kind of a reverse order, beginning with paying your taxes, moving backward toward paying honor and respect. And when it comes to taxes, he says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed. And Paul uses two words for taxes there. There's no direct correspondence between Roman taxation and our taxation. But you might, you might say something like, pay your taxes from your income tax all the way down to your sales tax. Pay it. Don't be tax evaders. Don't be skimping along the way or playing under the table. Why? Why in the world would you voluntarily and forthrightly do such a thing? Why? Because as Paul explained in verse 6, those who set up and collect the taxes, listen, they are ministers of God. 
That's what he calls them in verse 6. They're ministers of God. He actually uses the word liturgos, from which we get liturgy. It's an, it's an uncommon word in this kind of a context. They are the ones who are performing. It's a word specifically for religious duties. So they're performing a kind of a sacred duty when they establish and collect these taxes. They're, they're serving God. And so paying taxes is a recognition of God's call on their life, a recognition of the authority that He has given them for establishing an orderly and stable kind of a, an environment, a stable kind of a society. You say, well, it could be better. Of course it could be better. You're never set up to expect perfection in this world. But what you are set up to do is to recognize that in the imperfection of whatever government is over you, it's over you because God's put it there. Along with that, Paul says, verse 7, pay respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In other words, you're not just supposed to tolerate the taxes. You're not supposed to just pay our taxes, we're supposed to pay them and then honor those who collect them. And even in 1 Timothy 2, you're supposed to pray for them to have, you might say, welfare. So that what they do as they collect those taxes can be done in an efficient and orderly and stable and civil manner. So that, as Paul says, we can live at peace. Carry out the work even of the gospel. In a way, Paul's saying that this service that these authorities are providing for us places you and I under a kind of obligation, a kind of a debt. We owe certain things. We owe certain things. I think about this as I hear people grumble and complain about taxes and then turn around and grumble and complain about roads and then turn around and grumble and complain about taxes and then turn around and grumble and complain about this and that. As if somehow, you know, government officials are just supposed to like, you know, milk out of rocks money or something to provide all the things that we want to enjoy in a society. What Paul is saying is, as reasonable as rational, as civil, and as loving Christians, we need to have a healthy appreciation of the strain and the stress that governing officials are going through trying to provide the services that they're trying to provide for us with the resources as limited as they are. You say, well, I I read this story about this person. They bought a $1,000 hammer, and that was unnecessary, and that was corrupt. Well, for every one of those, I can tell you about a police officer, a teacher, someone who's out there stretching every penny they have, trying to do the best job they have to provide the kind of services they can within the structures that God has put in place. And Paul's saying, you know what? We have a debt. We owe something to them. You owe not only your taxes. You owe respect. You owe honor to these people it would be disrespectful it would be bad-mannered it would really be contemptuous 
for you to expect them to provide us with clean water, with decent roads, with law enforcement, with different kinds of administration, and then not to recognize the benefit of what these people do. To recognize that God is using them to bring blessings into your life. This is what loving people do, Paul's telling us. So we don't just pay our taxes, we also pay our honor. We pay our respect. We have an obligation. We owe that. And then Paul summarizes it all in verse 8. Owe no man anything. Wait a second, I thought you just said that we owe to them these, this kind of honor. Well, what he's saying is, don't have any outstanding payment. He's not saying that you're never under obligation, but he's saying don't have any unmet obligation. Don't have any unmet obligation in honor or taxes or anything else. And you can't miss the correlation here. You can't miss the summary, this language of what we owe to these governing authorities Paul says what we really owe to them is love. Owe no man anything except to love. That is your unpayable debt. That is the one obligation which you will never fulfill fully. You will always have an outstanding payment in that. And the contrast he's making here is that we have no outstanding payments in our taxes, no outstanding payment in our respect or in anything else. We're not to have outstanding or unpaid obligations, but when it comes to love, we are in this constant sense of a debt that is not satisfied. By the way, some people take this to to mean you can't borrow money. We're not allowed to borrow because it says we're not supposed to owe anything to anyone. It's clear from the context here, Paul's primary reference isn't to borrowing, it's really to taxes. And even if you extract a principle from this and apply it to financial debts, the principle is simply this, repay according to your obligation. Don't have any outstanding payments. In fact, God's always made provisions within His law for borrowing and lending. Leviticus 25, verse 35, demonstrates an act of mercy in loaning out money to those who are weak or or deficient or needy. And to cut off that kind of apparatus of uh, lending is to cut off much needed avenues of help for those who are in time of need. That's why Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. God's made provisions for this because he understands that not everyone has equal financial resources and he wants to have avenues of mercy within economics and within governments. But even when you do borrow, your obligation is to pay your debts. Pay what you owe. Pay according to your agreements. The application of Romans 13... Eight there is they need to be satisfied just like your taxes, just like your debt to honor, just like your debt to whatever. But the one debt that is never fully paid is love. And the correlation Paul's making is that love is the obligation that's behind all other obligations. It is the debt that is behind every other debt. 
You wouldn't miss a payment on a loan because that would be unloving to the one who lent you the money when you needed it. We all know that, right? We know the best way to get rid of someone is loan them money, right? Because then suddenly the, the pressure comes, the tension comes. But of course, Paul's saying if the love is there, that kind of tension isn't there because you're, you're repaying gladly, freely. You understand that, that, that you wouldn't want someone to treat you that way. And so when someone has loaned out money, you want to repay. You wouldn't miss a payment on a loan because that would be unloving to those who lent the money. And, and to do that would be a tremendous act of disrespect. It would damage your testimony. It would bring reproach upon the gospel. You wouldn't miss a tax payment because to do that would show a contempt not only for the Lord who has established the governments, but it would be a contempt for those who are working hard to provide the services and the roads and everything that makes our society run smooth. It would not only do that, it would damage your testimony with them. It would bring reproach upon the gospel. And instead of them being an audience who would hear the word of God from you, they would become a prosecutor, a plaintiff who would be bringing their grievances and their complaints against you. And none of that is the will of God. And so Paul reviews all of our responsibilities to government and he summarizes it in this way. Don't have any outstanding obligations to them except to love them. And in that you ought to recognize you're always under obligation. You're under obligation to your teacher, you're under obligation to your, to your uh, police officer, your law enforcement officer, you're under, you're under obligation to your uh, mayor and your councilman and everyone up the chain. You say, well, I don't like them very much, I don't like what they do. Well, that doesn't matter, that just means they need the gospel, right? You say, well, they've mistreated me, well, that means they need the gospel, And so they need you to show what the gospel looks like in love so that you would have the bridge to preach that gospel. Love is your motivation then. You show them respect. You show them the honor because you love them. You make their job easier. You lift their burdens. You submit. You pay your taxes. You give honor because you love them. And in doing that, Paul says, the one who loves Another has fulfilled the law. Not the law of our land so much, although that certainly would be the case. But Paul is drawing on the rich tradition of Jesus' teaching, the law of God. Which takes us to our next point. Love fulfills your spiritual responsibility. That's the other side of this. The first is love certainly ought to lead you to fulfill every civic responsibility you have. But here, love fulfills your spiritual responsibilities. And he's just drilling down deeper in our understanding of why we must respond in this way. It is because God has commanded us to love all men. He's commanded us to love even those in authority. And all this discussion about how we respond is really just an application of this principle of love. The principle of love is really a summary He says in verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall not, excuse me, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling. It fills out, we might say, the law. 
It brings the law to its exhaustive manifestation. You know, the Old Testament is full, of course, of of laws. It's full of all kinds of things. But in many cases, they are what we might call case law. In other words, it tells the story, it tells a situation about a guy with a bull who goes across and does damage to someone else's property or even gores someone else in the side. And it explains to you in that situation how you are to bring about some sort of reconciliation, some sort of justice. It describes some specific offense and some specific outcome. But what Jesus taught is that love is the summarizing principle behind all of this stuff. Each one of those case laws is simply an application of the greater law of love. Just as Paul is saying here, commit adultery, you don't commit adultery, you're not to murder, you're not to steal. Those are all just, just manifestations of the same law. Now it's important to understand, I just need to make this note. That when Jesus says this, and when Paul says this, he's not setting law against love. He's not setting those things in contrast to one another. Jesus didn't set law and love against one another. I remember attending a church a a, a few years ago, and, and the whole emphasis, not only of the sermon, but the whole sermon series, the whole emphasis of of what the the preacher was saying was that in order to be compassionate, Jesus had to decide to be inconsistent. He had to be inconsistent with the law. He had to violate the law at various times, and he knew that in order to be compassionate. If you wanted to be loving, if you wanted to show concern for others, he had to get over this whole idea of always being consistent. And people who are always concerned about being consistent are always people who are lacking in compassion. Well, that certainly are not, is not from the words of Jesus Christ Himself. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The exact opposite of what Jesus says. You understand that, right? Because Jesus never pitted love and law against one another. He said that in loving you are fulfilling the law. He's saying that if you want to be consistent, then you have to be loving. If you want to be loving, then you have to be consistent or you will be consistent. Because love doesn't violate the law, it doesn't set aside the law, it doesn't nullify the law, it fulfills the law. And the person who comes along says, well, you know, I don't believe in all that, you know, I don't believe in all that Bible study stuff, and I don't believe in all that that stuff about, you know, discipline and making rules and all that, I just believe in love. Well, my question to them is, what kind of love is that? A love which sets aside the very thing that, that is... It's claiming love is the fulfillment of. Whatever their definition of love is, it's not a biblical love. Because biblical love doesn't nullify the law, it fulfills the law. In fact, I want to show you a passage. Look with me over at 1 Timothy chapter 1, because perhaps few places in the New Testament illustrate this as well. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul 
had been released from his Roman imprisonment and visiting around in the churches, he finds, Tim, he finds in Ephesus this dire situation. Some, some men or, 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 or a man had become entrenched in the congregation, had set himself up, had endeared himself to the people. And yet, as Paul goes on to say, he was teaching strange doctrines. He was teaching things that were not right. And the, the way that Paul unfolds this, I think, is very instructive for us. He says to Timothy, now Paul has left and he's left Timothy behind to deal with this because he knows that it's not going to be held, uh, dealt with in one fell swoop. He knows that, that these kinds of teachers who have dug their roots deep into the church cannot be easily uprooted. And so it took the hand of a patient shepherd through years to bring this out. And so he says to Timothy, he says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you might charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our instruction, the aim of our charge is love. It issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And the key point there in verse 5 is that the aim, the goal of our charge, it's really the word for instruction, it's the goal of our instruction, the goal of what we teach, the outcome, the fruit, the evidence of our sound doctrine is what? It's love. And Paul doesn't say love for whom, he just simply says love, meaning it's love for God, it's love for others. It produces love. And in light of this situation where Timothy was serving, Paul probably had, I would imagine, at least to the forefront of his mind, love for other people. Because as he goes on to say, these men in what they were doing were leading to and creating within the church strife and quarrels and all these other things. And Paul wants Timothy to understand this key point of discernment, that sound doctrine faithfully taught over time and applied in the lives of people produces a community identified by love. And everywhere you turn in Scripture, this is, this is the supreme, uh, this is the pinnacle of Christian doctrine, right? Now, faith, hope, and love now abide these three, but the greatest of these is what? It is love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and the second commandment is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or Jesus in John 14, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, so you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. And so the goal, the end result of sound doctrine, the end to which it's always driving, he says, is love. It produces a love for God. It produces and enhances a real love for others. Its focus and its aim is love. Now here's the interesting thing. Because Paul immediately contrasts this with these so-called teachers in Ephesus. And particularly with what? With their handling of the law. Look what he says in verse 6. Certain persons 
by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, this would have amazed, I'm sure, the Ephesian believers that their teachers who stood in front of them week after week and seemed to know so much of the Bible and, and, and were all over it, all over the place, they had amassed their, their followers, they were so esteemed, they, would have, they, w- they were so inbred, they would have been amazed that these people who were making such confident assertions about their knowledge of the Old Testament were not loving. Now, we don't know a lot about these teachers, the ones that Paul's talking about, but we know that in everything they're doing, whatever they're doing, and their confident assertions about the law or whatever it was, they were not resulting in love. And what Paul's saying is, look, these guys might know a lot of material, they might have a lot of claims about the law, but they don't really understand what is behind it. They don't really understand what it leads to. They don't really understand the full intent, the purpose of the material. They claim to have mastered it. But if they did, the end result, Paul says, would be love. A superabundance of love in their life, a, a loving behavior in the lives of those who followed them, they would end up talking about love over and over and over. It would be a frequent outcome of their lessons. They would bring it to the surface again and again. And Paul, of course, is not just saying that that would be the outcome if they're discussing, what, the Ten Commandments. He's saying that's the goal of all of our instruction. All of our instruction goes to that. That's like Jesus saying all the law and all the prophets. doesn't matter really what part of the Bible you're in. It's leading to this goal. It's leading to this outcome. Now back over in Romans chapter 13, this is the same truth that Paul's saying. The commandments, the teaching, whatever it is, you shall not commit adultery, you don't murder, you don't steal, you don't covet, any other commandment, all of it is summed up in this. You will love your neighbor as yourself. If you're going to properly understand what those things are all about, they would leave you with the understanding of what a loving person looks like. Or you might say it this way, if you understand what it is from those commandments, you would understand the viewpoint of what an unloving act it would be to violate all of those things. You don't need a law that says don't commit adultery when you love your spouse. You don't need a law that says you shall not murder when you really love someone. You don't need a law that says you shall not steal if I understand that I'm supposed to love the person with other property. You don't need someone telling you not to covet if you really love other people and desire what is good for them. You don't need a commandment to honor your father and mother if you really love them. If you really love them, it's going to come out. And Paul just throws this in here, and any other commandment. Let me just let me swipe the whole Old Testament in here. 
This is where all the commandments lead. This is where all the teaching leads. This is where it all, this is the goal of our instruction. All the commandments are summed up in this way. The result is love. And the idea here is that all of our relationships with others, it doesn't matter if it's in your family, it doesn't matter if it's in the church, it doesn't matter if it's in the governing, governing authorities, it doesn't matter. It's all fulfilled in this. Love. Or to turn it around in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So we're asking ourselves, does it harm anyone? Does it commit a wrong towards anyone? Does it do what is hurtful to them? Then it's not pleasing to the Lord. In all of this, we might say love is the clarifying principle of the law. It is the summarizing principle of its interpretation. It's summarizing principle of what pleases God. Now listen to me. I'm not talking about your feelings of love. I'm not talking about your emotions of love. I'm not talking about the love that you read uh, in a Hallmark card or see on the Hallmark channel. I'm talking about love as it's defined by Scripture. This is the clarifying principle, the summarizing principle of how we should live. At the home, in the church, in society. This is where it all points. Paul says you're under obligation. You have a debt that maybe you thought you satisfied yesterday. And maybe you thought you satisfied it this morning. And you turn around and it's still there. You're under obligation. And so you need to pay up. You pay up again and again and again. Say, why? Why do I have to keep paying? Why why does it never end? Why don't I get to receive sometimes? Well, you might receive, but you're still in debt. You're still in debt. Why? This is what pleases God. This is what pleases God. Until you get to the point where you realize that this isn't actually taking anything from you. God's actually calling you to a blessed life. That's when you take your earlobe and you take it up to the Lord and you say, I surrender. I used to think this was slavery. Now I understand this is joy. Loving others is an act of worship to you because that's the way you've dealt with me. It's a glorious truth. Transforms the way that we understand everything we do. As I said, whether it's in our home whether it's in the church or whether it's in society, it's pleasing to the Lord when it's loving to others. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we hear your word for us this morning, coming to us and penetrating our hearts with the same insight and, and even dividing down to the very joints and marrow the thoughts and intents and motives of our lives. Lord, you have laid bare who we are this morning and we pray that you would help us set aside all of the vain discussions 
and to get busy with what pleases you. Help us, Lord, to be the kind of loving people, not just to those who love us in return, but the kind of loving people to our governing authorities, in our civic responsibilities, in the people we meet along the way, to be loving of them as a debt of service, but more importantly, as an act of worship. We pray for all these things by the power and the help of your Spirit. Amen.